Hello and welcome to this episode of The Jewish Views with me, Tony Honickberg. Me, Phil Dave. And me, Clive Roslin. Coming up this week, we have Carol Gould, who is an American political commentator, and she will be talking about the resignation of Nikki Haley, the US ambassador to the United Nations. Alan Dean, a broadcaster and writer, will be talking about Yiddish Jazz, his new compilation of music from the East End of London. And Mark Phillips and Rabbi Kathleen Middleton are talking about the Mosaic community's ambitious plan to move to Stanmore. But before all that, let's get a round-up of the main Jewish news stories from the past week with John Kay. And we begin with America's ambassador to the United Nations, Nikki Haley, who's resigned unexpectedly after two years in which she championed Israel at the World Forum. Miss Haley oversaw the U.S. Embassy's move to Jerusalem, the U.S. withdrawal from the Iran nuclear deal, the U.S. withdrawal from the U.N. human rights bodies critical of Israel, as well as American funding for Palestinian authorities and refugee programs. She regularly lambasted Israel's critics from her position on the Security Council. News of her resignation came as a shock to world leaders who'd grown used to her combative style, which she used to threaten those countries who voted against the U.S. on the embassy move. Members of Parliament are being urged to boycott this year's Board of Deputies President's dinner by a group of Haredi Jews who say the board doesn't represent the interests of all British Jews. In a letter sent to invited MPs, the Haredi activist Shraga Stern says there'll be a protest outside the dinner and refer to the board as fringe noisemakers. Mr Stern says they represent only around 20% of British Jews. The remaining 80% of Jews, he says, a large proportion of which is made up by Haredi Jews, don't consider that their views are represented by the Board of Deputies. Mr Stern says the Board is disenfranchising their community with its stance on education claiming that three out of every four children in Jewish schools are Haredi. He accuses the deputies of colluding with Ofsted to destroy their community. The Board of Deputies declined to comment. A funeral was held for one of two Israelis killed in a terror attack in the Barkan industrial area in the West Bank on Sunday. Family and friends of 29-year-old Kim Levengrond Yehezkel gathered to bury her body in her hometown of Rosh Ha'ayin after she was shot dead by a Palestinian terrorist on Sunday. The attack took place shortly before 8 in the morning at the beginning of the working week in the settlement's industrial zone that's home to 160 factories that employ thousands of Palestinian and Jewish workers. The second victim was identified as V. Hanchby, a 35-year-old father of three from Rishon Letzion in central Israel. They were both tied up and shot at close range. The attack is reported to be the first of its kind in the Barkan Industrial Park. The attacker, who used an assault rifle and reportedly knew the two dead victims, was caught on security cameras leaving the factory's industrial zone. He reportedly left behind a suicide note with a friend. 
19 swastikas were spray-painted on the walls of a Jewish community centre in the United States. The vandalism was discovered on Saturday morning at the Jewish community centre of Northern Virginia in Fairfax. Surveillance video shows a man wearing dark clothes spraying the building at about 4.30 in the morning. Highly sought-after Judaica, including a silver Torah breastplate and a Georgian silver soup terrine that once belonged to the Montefiore family, could fetch more than £30,000 when they go under the hammer this month. The four items feature in an auction of silver at Chiswick Auctions in London on October the 23rd. Estimated to fetch up to £8,000, the Torah breastplate, made from parcel gilt sterling silver, dates back to 1900 and is intricately decorated with flowers and leaves throughout. The news this week. Thank you, John. First on the Jewish News this week, Justin Cohen, the news editor of the Jewish News, joins us to review your copy of the Jewish News for this week. Now, let's look at the front page, and the headline reads, Two Hearts Beat as One. And it's a fascinating story, Justin, because it's all about a Palestinian baby who gets a transplant from a Jewish child. Yeah, we've become all too used to bad news on the front page, particularly around labor anti-Semitism during this year. But we're delighted to be able to share this very positive story under the headline, Two Hearts Beat as One. It's actually a first, a surgery performed the end of last week at Sheba Medical Center in Ramat Gan. A first for two reasons. First of all, the first time that a heart transplant surgery had been performed on such a young child at the hospital. And also the first time that a Palestinian baby had received a heart transplant from a Jewish child in Israel. So quite a, a heartwarming story. Our latest understanding is that the, this baby is in critical condition, still fighting for its life. But things are looking reasonably positive as much as they can be at this stage. Well, it's made public by you, but why hasn't it made more public among everybody? Yeah, I was wondering that myself. I, I thought this would be quite a, a big story in Israel when it broke earlier this week, when we were made aware of it. I don't know the answer. I'm sure that other people hope other people will pick it up now. This was publicised by the hospital, so um, it's definitely a story that ought to be out there, particularly, I think, in a week where, unfortunately, we've seen the latest Palestinian violence against Israelis, the the murder of two uh, young people in the West Bank. This is a story that, that people also need to hear of. Though, of course, that could be the reason why this story hasn't received greater publicity is because there are still such terrible troubles going on between both Palestinian and Israeli sides. And unfortunately, the more victims have arisen this week. Of course, I, I don't think that's the reason. I, I think the, the other stuff quite rightly gets uh, the, the, the bad stories, the bad headlines get reported, although you could argue not as much as they ought to have done in the in the UK press. But there, there's also plenty of room for, for more positive headlines like this, certainly, certainly in the pages of the Jewish News. And I see, Justin, that you have got Marie van der Zyl, who is the president of the Board of Deputies, doing an op-ed this week. What's been going on at the Board of Deputies? Yeah, we asked Marie to, to write a piece after... I think the Board of Deputies used to be an area where maybe something, not a lot was going on and you wondered what, what they were up to, what the latest stuff they were up to. I think everyone is talking about the Board of Deputies at the moment for various reasons. Sometimes they're approvingly, sometimes not. But they're, they're caught in, it's really reflective of, of how diverse our community is and, and what a community we live in with healthy debate from the left and the right and the orthodox and the not orthodox. Just for example, 
example, some of the things that Marie talks about uh, in the last week or so, they had protesters from the Jewish community from the, I think from originated from the Kurdish for Gaza incident protesting outside a meeting of the Board of Deputies. They've had petitions and counter petitions, attempts at votes of no confidence, targeting one of their vice presidents for criticizing the nation state law, and now a counter attempt at a vote of no confidence against those that attacked her criticism of the nation state law. So we'll see how those go. They, they both need 50 signatures, 50 members of the, of the Board of Deputies to bring even a vote in the first place. So we'll see what happens there. Uh, then we've had this issue of around their dinner, a particular Haredi activist writing to MPs suggesting that they shouldn't go to the Board of Deputies dinner because somehow the Board of Deputies isn't representative, an appeal to Sadiq Khan not to attend the, the board. And now counter to that effort, also within the Haredi community, we're hearing from people and petitions are being created asking that people like those that put forward the, uh, this, this left in the first place shouldn't be seen as representatives themselves of the Haredi community. It's, it's a case of 30 Jews and 300 opinions. Here, uh, does anyone it? else need headache tablets? I'm sorry, I'm really lost here. <laughs> Did any of that make any sense? It we will plen- read it. It made plenty yes. of sense. I just cannot believe the what the is going, happening at the Board of Deputies the, at the just, moment. Just the goings-on or non-goings-on, as you said. Absolutely extraordinary. Well, let's try and move on to something a little bit lighter. And if we flick back to the front page, there's a very nice and striking photo of Melanie Sykes, photographed with, one can only assume, a winner from Jews Got Talent. Tell us a little bit about the event that took place in the past week. Yeah, this was the annual search by Jewish Care for talent within the community and people of all ages entered. And the winner was the 10-year-old singer, Shelley Chitiat. I understand it wasn't there, but I understand that her performance was beautiful and as was the performances by a number of other people. And we hope that we could be partners again for this next year. And our very own Richard Ferrer was a judge, I believe. That's right. Richard was one of the judges alongside Melanie Sykes. He was honoured to be there and I understand all the judges got on very well. I don't know if Richard was the most talent-filled person on that panel. But, but he was probably uh, the most like Simon Cowell, I suspect. I think he, he was practising his Simon Cowell and hopefully he doesn't hear this section because I wouldn't want to suggest that there were other people on that panel who perhaps were more <laughs> talented. Couldn't possibly say such a thing. Yeah. But when he hears this, I'm sure he'll be pleased to, to hear that. It'll be a good test as, as to whether he actually listens to the podcast, I think. Yeah, as long as he doesn't say to the podcast, I didn't love it. Anyway, but let's <laughs> let's move on to some other talent, a little further than Jews Got Talent, because another Jew who has got quite a lot of talent would be Netta, who mm. won Eurovision this year. And is it right? Could it be true? She's coming to London. The chicken dance is on its way. Hurrah! Um, yes. This, of course, was, was Netta Barzilai, who, of course, won Eurovision for Israel back in May and caused huge celebrations, tens of thousands of people gathering in Rabin Square. And the reason, of course, why Eurovision will take place in Tel Aviv next year. You were she, there at those celebrations, weren't you? Weren't you in Israel at the time for another reason? My, it was my penultimate night in Israel during a, a brief holiday. And I was watching on on television and suddenly after she won, they started having news flashes going back to Rabin Square and showing the masses gathering on that square and getting bigger and bigger and bigger. I realised that I was probably about 10 minutes walk away from the square and I, I, I would be rude not to go down there. Even absolutely. Though, even though it was about 2am. Yeah, well, it doesn't, that's never stopped you before. No, absolutely. So, you know but me. we missed the point. Of course, you were telling us that they, she is indeed coming to London. She is. She's coming to perform at a big gala dinner, the first held by uh, the British Friends of United Hatsala. 
their amazing work that they do in Israel, life-saving work and helping to raise funds for them. Also performing on the night, or rather co-comparing the night, will be Miss Israel and Miss Iraq from last year, who have become a bit of a double act since they formed a friendship. They've both been traveling in Israel together and, and appearing at events in Israel. And now they're coming to, to do this event. So it should be quite a good event. I'll say, and I'm only ever so slightly annoyed that I actually have now taken the liberty of booking tickets to go to Israel for next year's Eurovision, when of course, all along, I could have seen her in London instead. You can do both, maybe. Good idea. Yes. That's where we'll have to leave it for this week, but thanks, Justin. Don't forget, you can pick up your copy of The Jewish News every Thursday across London or read the e-version at jewishnews.co.uk. You're listening to The Jewish Views in association with The Jewish News. Now, this week, shock announcement. The US ambassador for the UN announced her resignation. It is, of course, Nikki Haley, a champion by all accounts for the state of Israel in amongst the criticism, one could call it, of the UN. And to discuss this further, we are delighted to welcome American political commentator Carol Gould to The Jewish Views. Carol, I suppose that there will be some people out there who aren't familiar with who Nikki Haley is. So maybe you'd just like to explain a bit more, expand a bit more about what her role was to the UN. Yes, what's interesting is that she is first-generation American. Her parents were born in the Punjab in India. Like Governor Bobby Jindal, ex-governor of Louisiana, he is also of Punjabi He's first generation. His parents are from the Punjab. Both Nikki Haley and Bobby Jindal, who at one time was president, regarded as possible presidential material, are Republican. Now, Nikki Haley is, I would say, a, a centrist Republican. She's not what you'd call a right-wing Republican. So it is interesting for your listeners to know that when she disagrees with President Trump, who, as we know, can often change his tune from week to week on international and local policies, she seems to get on well with him. Many people who cross him, the next thing you know, we hear they've been sacked. So it is useful to know that she at times has disagreed with President Trump on various issues, which are mainly domestic, not international. But the most important thing to your listeners, of course, is that she has always been a 100% steadfast supporter of Israel. Absolutely. And furthermore, there are many people out there who believe rightly or wrongly that the UN does can I say, have it in for Israel, perhaps. And even if that is or is not the case, there are those who feel it quite strongly. So, oh, to yeah. have, so to have somebody who is such an advocate in the midst of the UN, it is going to be a terrible loss and, frankly, possibly quite worrying for Israel. I'm not sure, Phil, because there are other people in Trump's circle and in the US and in the diplomatic force who could fill her shoes very well and who would also support Israel. Well, it would certainly appear at surface value as if the UN does have a certain, shall we say, problem with some of the things that Israel does do. And again, rightly or wrongly. But with regards to Nikki Haley, who do you think is going to take over from her? Because she has got quite impressive shoes to fill, hasn't she? I mean, could we possibly look at the likes of Kushner perhaps taking over? Who would it be? Yes, Jared Kushner is a definite possibility. He's, He's orthodox. 
very devoted to his Judaism. His wife, Ivanka Trump, converted. And in fact, there was even talk yesterday of Ivanka being the new UN ambassador. And I don't know if your listeners saw President Trump on television, but he said, she'd be terrific. She'd be great. But it's not up to me. It'll all be talked about. And he's, anyway, he said it'll be nepotism. Well, at least he uh, recognizes he, that, so that's something. He recognizes it. How about that? But the sequence of events that people in the know in Washington are speculating about is that Donald Trump is not happy with his Attorney General, Jeff Sessions, hasn't been for a long time. He's probably going to ask him to resign or he will fire him. I'm not being flippant here. This is what is being speculated quite seriously, quite speculated on in Washington. He will replace Jeff Sessions with Senator Lindsey Graham, the Republican of South Carolina, who came to our attention during the Kavanaugh hearings in the past fortnight. Lindsey Graham will be replaced, if it is constitutionally possible in South Carolina, by Nikki Haley. She already was governor of South Carolina, is known by voters, is liked by voters, even some Democrats, and she would replace Lindsey Graham until the next election, who will fill her shoes? As I said before, it could be Jared Kushner, Ivanka Trump's husband, or there could be someone else that Donald Trump has in mind who has not yet been mooted. But there are one or two people. Someone who came to mind to me was Condoleezza Rice, also a Republican. But the problem with Condoleezza Rice is that she loves being in California and teaching at Stanford. So she probably wouldn't want to make the big move to New York. The only uh, reservation some people have about Condoleezza Rice is that she has not been 100% pro-Israel, whereas Nikki Haley always has. Trump really has to find someone who will be as staunchly supportive of the right of the the Jewish state to exist, the right of Israel to defend itself against constant daily Hamas and Hezbollah terrorism. And I, I cannot say, I have been doing a lot of research before your program over the past couple of hours, and I have not been able to come up with anyone specific, but there could be someone, perhaps someone that she will recommend, Nikki Haley will recommend to President Trump, or that Jared Kushner will recommend. But it has to be someone of her caliber, has to be someone of the caliber of of Madeleine Albright, although Madeleine Albright was a Clinton pointy and a Democrat, but it will have to be someone of Trump's political persuasion and who supports the right of the state of Israel to exist and to defend her right to send off this dreadful daily terrorism. Now, I couldn't help but notice on some news websites before speaking to you, there are some people who are saying that Nikki Haley's timing with this is quite spot on in the sense that she's doing it at the right time because she's on a high and it could be for her own political gain. You've already mentioned about her possibly stepping into another Senate's shoes. But do you think that there is something in that? Because at the moment, it is all speculation. We don't really know the reason why she has suddenly resigned. Yes. If she, now, it's interesting yesterday at her meeting with President Trump uh, in the White House, and it was televised, 
he said to her that he he thought she was absolutely sterling and then the, the, this talk came to whether she would consider running for president in 2020 and she said oh no no I'll be campaigning for this one and she pointed to him and I think that was I mean she is a diplomat so that was diplomatic if she goes into the senate that is a stepping off point for future political ambition. And she isn't old. I mean, she's young enough to wait until 2024, if Trump is reelected in 2020, to enter the presidential fray. And as your listeners know, the presidential campaign in the U.S. starts about two years before the election. So (laughs) she'd have to be getting ready in 2022. Just finally, what do you think her legacy for her work at the U.N. will be? That she was a constant, steadfast, staunch supporter of critic of Israel and fended off critics, and was in no uncertain terms the first UN ambassador from the U.S. to stand up to countries who were trying to condemn Israel, who were constantly trying to get resolutions passed through the Security Council and the United Nations General Assembly to condemn Israel. And I think that she, this wasn't just Trump saying, you'd better do this, you better do that. She did it from her own feelings of support for Israel. And so she's a Christian. She, I wouldn't say she's a Christian Zionist. But she understands why Israel is there, what it means to the Jewish people, and Trump is going to have to find someone who sustains that legacy. She's also enormously articulate, eloquent, assertive, and and she did get the respect of, I'd say, pretty much all of the members of the Security Council and pretty much all of the ambassadors, even some of the ones who don't like Israel, had a reluctant respect for her. Well... I'd say after listening to that, you match that eloquence, Carol Gould, and personally, I'd vote for you. Thank you very much indeed. (laughs) I'm happy to get on the next plane. (laughs) No, please don't do that. We need you. Thank you very much indeed for speaking to us today on The Jewish News. If you'd like to get in contact about any of the stories you've heard on this show, then we'd love to hear your Jewish views. Email studio at jewishviews.co.uk. On Facebook, go to Facebook com slash the Jewish Views. On Twitter, we are at Jewish Views UK, or you can go to our website, jewishviews.co.uk. You're listening to the Jewish Views in association with the Jewish News, and in the studio with me now is Alan Dean. Alan is a broadcaster, and he's coming to talk about Yiddish jazz, his new compilation of music from the East End of London. Alan, first question, how did you get into this Yiddish jazz. What made you think of that one? Firstly, it's lovely to be here and I'm delighted to be talk to talk to you about the project and how I got into it was about two years ago I was working with an organization in Austria who put together an exhibition called Jukebox Jukebox and the second jukebox is J-E-W and the idea of the project was to document Jewish recorded music throughout the world, mostly using the sleeves, LP sleeves, single sleeves, and the and the old-fashioned sleeves for gramophone records, the 78s. And we built up this massive collection, which has been on display now. It's travelled the world. One big omission in that exhibition was the amount of material that related to London, which I thought 
needs to be redressed. There's a story behind Jewish English music, Mm -hmm. not Jewish artists that happen to record, but music with a Yiddish twist, a theme, a kind of sense of Jewishness. And so I started to explore these records. And what did you come up with? Some fantastic material. I I couldn't believe my luck because it was a mixture between finding a few 78s that had been presented to me by people who had been collecting this kind of music. And one of them was a track called Beigles by Max Bacon. And for some of your listeners may remember Max. He was a drummer extraordinaire of perhaps the Rolls Royce of dancehall groups of the 30s, Ambrose and his orchestra. And Max, although Bacon, you know, you can't have more of a trafe name, but I assure <laughs> you he was Jewish. And Maxie sung a kind of what he would call Yinglish. It was sort of Yiddish and English. They were sort of comedy records, but with a jazz swing. And this is a rumba about buying bygles in Petticoat Lane. Was this a bit like the Mickey Katz sort of thing that he did in New York? Because he did this Yiddish, uh, New York, jazz music, which he'd he'd rewritten all the songs, hadn't he, with Yiddish expressions. That's right. It comes from a long tradition. In fact, Mickey Katz follows tradition, goes all the way back to Vaudeville Music Hall. Mm. And there were Jewish comedians. And some of them would be very embarrassing for us to look at now. They were sort of, I would call them sort of, it's Shylock's. With slapstick. We'd cringe, wouldn't we? We really would. But as the years went by, they got a lot more canny. And one of the most famous ones was a guy that sang a record called Cohen on the Phone. And it was a play about a guy called Cohen who was on the phone. He couldn't really hear the person on the other end. It was a very clever record recorded in London by an American musical comedian. It sold in its day millions which is extraordinary. And so Mickey Katz sort of follows that. And Max Bacon, in a way, is the English version. And pre-Mickey Katz, was Mickey, ba- Mickey Katz really sort of comes to his fore just after the Second mm. World War. But certainly what's so amazing about these records is you've got the comedy twist, but you have incredibly brilliant performing. Great jazz musicians. Superb. And was, it, was a lot of it based on Eastern European Kletzmer? type of music or was it based on what we now think of as traditional jazz from the USA? I think it's a really good question and in fact I would say it's a mozza pudding of it all. What was going on particularly in the sort of 20s and 30s was a sort of mix between people playing sort of what I call Jewish folk songs at weddings so a kind of music that we would call klezmer music today but also with the movement of jazz and particularly from the late teens as jazz becomes more and more popular and jazz music is significant and of course the other thing about it is is in the east end of London where a lot of this music was based in the sense of the musicians were born and bred Mm. there if not born there certainly bred there someone had been born in the old world but certainly what's so interesting is that when they start kind of discovering this musical fascination they bring with them their Jewishness but also they go to the American stuff and there was a shop a very famous shop called Levy's in Whitechapel Road. They called themselves the home of music. They sold thousands and thousands of records, but they were the first to import 
the jazz records, the kind of red hot jazz records. And this had an incredible impact on people because they were listening to this music. And I, you can't imagine what it was like a hundred years ago to start listening to this stuff, you know, just discovering music. And it's just like young people today, how they discover whatever kind of music. And it had a very big impact. Now, you, you pointed back, as I did also, to the American jazz. But did they write any of their own jazz music? Well, this is so important, is the actual creation of a sort of indigenous music. And certainly a lot of the tracks are written here. But of course, a lot of the music that was popular, I would say, was the kind of Tim Pan Alley songs, Mm -hmm. songs like Muzzle. A song that was written just after the Second World War. Most people are familiar with it. You gotta have a beard and muzzle. And the great thing about muzzle was that if funny enough, it was first made a hit by an African-American band, which is great, you know, kind of black band singing <laughs> muzzle. But it was it was a very popular number and one of the great song covers I found was by Johnny Franks. Mm-hmm. And Johnny Franks and his kosher ragtimers. And Johnny was a young musician. Um, he was a son of a butcher, grew up in Stamford Hill. And he operated from a record label above a shop in Stamford Hill. And they put out these records to a very, to a, what I would call a sort of speciality Jewish audience. They didn't go very far. They were small independent labels. So they didn't really travel mm. beyond that world. But incredible versions. And the playing is phenomenal. He was a violinist. It's fascinating to hear it because... We talk about studios, and some studios are the Rolls-Royce mm-hmm. studios. Some of them are the Ford Anglia, and they most probably Don't were. Don't look at our studio. <laughs> <laughs> they were in the equivalent of, of the sort of more down-market studios, but they put out. They a, put out real professional recordings. Good stuff. Good stuff. Good stuff. Yeah. You've sort of alluded to this already, but who would you say that this music was made for in mind? Was it really targeted at the East End of London, and it was for there for the Jewish community's entertainment? Did they have a larger audience in mind, or how did it even expand into a larger audience if it did? It's a very interesting question who these records were aimed at. Some of the records were produced by the big labels, Decca, mm. for example. So they would have sold to a mainstream audience. And some of these songs were B-sides of records that Ambrose were putting out. So Ambrose would put out a more well-known dance number on the A-side. On the B-side would be Cohen the Crooner. The, the the Crosby yeah. of Mile End, yeah, and um, so there was there was there was so and obviously that would be for a wider audience who would be listening to that and getting a sense of a kind of Jewish world through those songs. So it's it's difficult to say who they were specifically aimed at, but I would say that there was a great demand for this kind of music and particularly and I think it's most probably a slight class issue here is that a lot of the records that were produced at the time for a Jewish audience would have been sort of what I call high music Mm. cantorial music Mm. it would have been music that have heard in the shawls in the West End very good choirs and people would have listened to that kind of music this is most probably the flip side of that this is people who don't want should we say religion Mm. they want fun but they want Yiddishkeit at the same time. Yeah. So it's a mixture of the two. So it's a, it's a slightly different kind of audience. Now, you, you've spoken about Bert Ambrose and Johnny Franks, but there were lots of others of these bands, which I, I always class at the time they were the wedding and bar mitzvah bands, that, that actually went on to be real successful bands. I mean, you got, uh, I, I think in down you've got Lou Stone. Absolutely. Who was really, and Bert Ambrose, of course, was really tops. Well, you, you've mentioned Lou Stone. Of course, Lou Stone was... was 
an incredibly well-known band leader. Of course, uh, of course, Lou had some great musicians. He had Al Bowley singing for him, Bowley, Mozambican-born, wonderful singer, Nat Ganella, great trumpeter. So he had a great squad of musicians, but Lou Stone, Whitechapel boy, and became, by the 30s, a star of the BBC. You know, B- you know, Ambrose, Lou Stone, these were people, these were radio personalities. People up and down the country would hear their work. And followed on by people like Joe Lawson and those sort of people. Absolutely. Also, you stand people that are musicians. Certainly. Finally, where can people get hold of your records? Well, the record book? is called Music is the Most Beautiful Language in the World. And why it's called that is it was, the mo- it was a slogan of a record shop in Brick Lane. Weinberg's gramophone dealers and their slogan was music is the most beautiful language in the world which I thought was a great lovely it's a, it's a lovely title and it's a subtitle is Yiddish Jazz in London's East End of course the music is not all what we call jazz mm. some of it's a bit folky some of it is a little bit ragtimey but it comes under you know jazz jazz is a big umbrella exactly exactly so I'd like to think it will cater to all mm. tastes you can get it at the easiest way is to contact JWM recordings at gmail.com. JWM for mother. JWM recordings at gmail.com. Or else, specialty record shops, a number of shops in the East End of London will have it. And also, you will find it if you click the link on various articles that have been written about it. So, hopefully, people will be able to discover it and get in touch with you, of course. And we'll put a link on our website as well. Thank you. Thank That'd you. Be brilliant. Alan Dean, thank you very much for coming and talking to us. Total pleasure. If you would like any more information on any of the stories or indeed the guests featured on this episode of The Jewish Views, then you can always go to our website, jewishviews.co.uk. You're listening to The Jewish Views in association with The Jewish News. And we've been joined now by two people, Mark Phillips and Rabbi Kathleen Middleton of the Mosaic Jewish Community, which is something entirely new, isn't it? What is the Mosaic Jewish Community, Mark Phillips? So Mosaic Jewish Community is a slightly new concept for Anglo Jewry in that we have brought together a reform, a liberal and a Mazorti synagogue into one community. So we pray separately, but pretty much everything else we do, we do together. So which do you belong to, though, or are you just something totally new? So our members belong typically to one of the three movements, but people can pray in whichever synagogue they feel like, whichever service they feel like each week, but pretty much everything else. So we come together for Kiddish, and if there's an education event going on, our social action programs, those are all done jointly. And Rabbi Kathleen Middleton, you're the rabbi of the congregation, are you? Well, I'm the rabbi of the reform community. (laughs) So, so as as Mark explained, there is three different synagogues involved. So I'm the rabbi of the reform one. Mark, what was the idea of doing this? The concept is what we're increasingly finding is, although some people are fantastically passionate about individual strands of Judaism, we find an awful lot of Jews don't find a natural home in just reform or just liberal or just orthodox. And so the idea of Mosaic is to be able to offer something which is, in some senses, we talk about, in some ways, our mixed couples, where we have you know, a husband who's passionately Mazorti, but the wife might be much more interested in coming to a liberal service, which is a different take on things. But also, it gives us an awful lot better ability to do things by having the scale of being together. And would there be any Orthodox Jews joining you, do you think? 
well, who knows down the line what might happen with this concept? Certainly, we've already talked quite at length internally about the idea of an orthodox minyan within our community. And for that matter, we also have humanist Jews who are part of the community. And we offer now once a month a service specifically aimed at people who don't fit the existing definition. Can I ask you, Rabbi, what a humanist Jew is? <laughs> That's something we are trying to, to sort out. But what we find <laughs> is that in, in the community, there are some people who really struggle with the traditional prayers and with the concept of God, and yet passionately Jewish. And we want them to feel that they have a place in, in our community as well. So if someone like me walked into one of your services, what would it seem like to me? Would it be more liberal, more reform, more Masorti, or, or, or what? All of it, because we will have different services going on at the same time. So you can choose. That's why our strap line is choose your Judaism. You can choose wherever you want to go. You come into the, the building and one day you feel, oh, I, I actually fancy having a look how the liberals do it. You go to liberal service. Ah, um, so you still the, have, you have three different services. If I were well, to... more, even more, because we will always strive to have the three services plus another, whether that's a family service or more meditative service or a more, even more traditional service whatever it is, but we want to have choice. Which of them do you belong to, Mark? I find myself in a position, I am traditionally a reform, so I'm currently a member of the Reform Synagogue, but in reality, I would say I'm a member of Mosaic. And I'm very much at home across that spectrum that sometimes I grew up in the Orthodox. So sometimes I go to Mazzotti services because I feel like a bit of tradition. I'm also very happy in our humanist services because those speak to me in sometimes, again, more than some of our other offerings. Rabbi Middleton, you say you're the rabbi of the reform part of this yes. mosaic service. Do you have Rabbonim on the other ones, on the Mazorti and on the liberal as well? Well, the Mazorti at the moment currently do not have a rabbi, but they had, and the liberals do have their rabbi as well. And and as, as a rabbi or, or with the other Rabbonim, do you get together as the head of the individual synagogues to, to discuss what's going on? Oh, yes, because, for instance, if we have a Tikkun Leil Shavuot, which is mainly a study session, so we'll have the servers each in our own synagogue, but we'll have the study session together. And, of course, having more than one rabbi, you get more than one view and more than one outlook as well, which is exciting. So you have to have three synagogues in the end, don't you? Or four yes. synagogues, is well, right. Three prayer, three prayer spaces. In how many members? Building. How, how many members, Mark, do you have at the moment? In round figures, we're about a thousand adults. As many as that? Yes. And what we're finding increasingly is a lot of our members now, uh, in many ways, for want of a better word, float across. You know, and would say yes, I belong to this one, but actually, most people say they're a member of Mosaic Jewish community. Where do you all actually meet at the moment? So at the moment, we have. Liberal and Reform sharing our, the old Reform building in Central Harrow. 
our Mazzotti colleagues uh, currently rent premises in the Hatch End area. And that's been part of our pressure has been to find a home that's in the right geographic location for where our members increasingly live and that can accommodate three, four, five services going on at once and the myriad of other activities we provide across the week. And are you going to move anywhere so it makes it more all of you, if you see what I mean? That's right, yeah. So our new home is on Stanmore Hill, so it's in the Stanmore Bushy borders, which fits very well with the direction of travel of where we're finding our younger members are coming from. And that building, in fact, will be able to accommodate six services running in parallel all at the same time all at the same time and again with the idea we all then come together for kiddish and study and education and social activities and religion school etc etc and when you when you're there in stanmore how do you hope to build yourself even more? I mean, you've got quite a few people already, but do you want it to make it a bigger congregation? Well, we hope this concept will be exciting and attractive to new members and also particularly to Jews who don't find a home in existing synagogues. Have you had any resistance from any of the other reform, Mazorti, liberal synagogues around the area? No. I think a lot of, of communities look at this project as, as a quite an exciting project because I, I think there is, first of all, many, well, many communities notice that there is a move among younger families, younger, younger Jews to be more post-denominational. They don't necessarily feel loyalty to the shul that their parents used to go to. Mm -hmm. So they like to choose more. And this offers more choice. It also offers more opportunity to work together, which a lot of middle-sized, smaller communities are looking for now all over in London, where they feel maybe they should try and pull resources together. I think a lot of, of, of communities want to see if we can succeed in this and are quite excited. You, yes. uh, you uh, made uh, it all sound very happy and great and fantastic, but is there, there must be some people who are not for you. I think internally we have people who, rather than saying not for it, we have some people who are very, for want of a better word, traditionally happy with one of the offerings. So somebody who is a very traditional, for want of a better word, if this doesn't sound odd, liberal Jew, who says, this is all very well, but actually I like my liberal service, I come to the synagogue, my life is about, you know, my Jewish life is about the liberal service, this doesn't really affect me. But that's not in any way, if you like, negative as regards the rest of the project. It just doesn't have as much traction for them. It just becomes that they have to be going to the building. When do you think you'll be in Stanmore? Uh, we should be in Stanmore in 2020. Mark Phillips and Rabbi yeah. Kathleen Middleton, thank you both very much indeed. That's nearly it for this episode of The Jewish Views, but it's now time for our rabbinic thought for the week, and it comes from Rabbi David Mason of Muswell Hill United Synagogue. In this week's portion, we read about the Tower of Babel in chapter 11 of Bereshit of Genesis. And often people look at the Tower of Babel, this story of building this tall tower and having the languages then dispersed and people dispersed by God as a result of this, as a story of power, a story of control, a desire by the people who lived at the time to control the world that was in Mesopotamia, in the Fertile Crescent, and be in place of God. 
Now, there's a rabbi who lived in Lithuania in the 19th century called Rabbi Naftali Yehuda Berlin, who says something slightly different, but really important for us today. He says that God's intention in creation was that there should be diversity, that people would spread out, that they would settle the world, and that they would create different approaches and ways of thinking. And the builders of the tower, he says, knew this. They knew what was happening. I remember being in Israel a number of years ago and going to the Bible Lands Museum in Jerusalem. And there they talked about how the original first society in Mesopotamia, in the Fertile Crescent, saw a great drop in fertility of crops, a radical drop. And so people began to move out and take with them each their religion. So dispersal was an inevitability. And so those who built the tower wanted to stop this dispersal and maintain a form of controlled uniformity. In effect, the Tower of Babel was a watchtower to check the dispersal that was going to happen. And the first verse here is quite important. It says that the world was of one tongue and was of united purpose. Now, Rabbi Jonathan Sachs, Lord Sachs, in his book, Dignity of Difference, used the Tower of Babel as his front cover. In chapter 3, he develops his thesis that unity would lead to diversity in history. He says Judaism was born as a protest against empires because imperialism and its latter-day successors, totalitarianism and fundamentalism, are attempts to impose a single truth on a plural world. So I suppose we're being told here that we should always suspect attempts to suppress diversity, the diversity that is a part of our life and our world. Thank you to Rabbi David Mason of Muswell Hill United Synagogue for this week's Rabbinic Thought of the Week. And that's it for this edition of The Jewish Views. Thank you to our guests, Carol Gould, Alan Dane, Mark Phillips, and Rabbi Kathleen Middleton. And thank you to producer Sue Greenberg and indeed to you at home for listening. And you can always listen to this episode or any previous episode of The Jewish Views by visiting our website, jewishviews.co.uk. Please remember to subscribe to us in your podcast application. The Jewish Views is brought to you in association with The Jewish News. From me, Clive Roslin. Me, Tony Honigberg. And me, Phil Dave. Do join us next time here on The Jewish Views. Goodbye.